to be in 1 Samuel 13 today. We're in a series called It's About Time. And last week, I explained the difference between the two Greek words that are translated time in the New Testament. The word chronos, which refers to chronological time, the tick, tick, tick of the clock, the monthly turn of the calendar, the march of the seasons, and the other word kairos, which refers to special times, favorable moments, those God moments when we can interact with him and make a difference in the world. If we want to enter into those moments, those kairos moments when they come, we're going to have to trust God. Trust is the key that unlocks that door. In some cases, that trust will require us to act boldly. Think of Esther, whose story we looked at last week. At other times, that trust will require us to refrain from acting, which can take even more faith, as we're going to see. When we think of kairos moments, we generally think of taking action. The language itself that we use is action-oriented. We seize the day. We grasp the opportunity. We take advantage of the situation. We're action-oriented, and action is often what we need. If we do nothing, we may miss our chance. The tide will be out. It'll be too late. But sometimes the way to enter into one of those opportune moments, those kairos favorable times, is to do nothing. Now, that's not quite right. We do something. We trust God, and we wait on him. It's because we take him at his word that we refuse to take the situation into our own hands. Instead of stepping in and seizing control, we trust God and we wait for him to act. There are times when we honor God more by what we don't do than by what we do. It sometimes requires more faith to do nothing than to do something. To wait when God says, not yet. Think of Abraham. <clears throat> he got scared when he went to Egypt and he devised a plan to protect himself. That plan did not involve trusting God, but trusting in deception. Moses had the opportunity to honor God by trusting him and taking him at his word. Instead, he acted out of frustration and dishonored God before his people. And because of that, he didn't enter the promised land. In both those situations, and in many more in scripture, doing nothing seemed harder and more risky than doing something. We get scared and tell ourselves, I've got to do something. We say, I can't wait any longer. I've talked with many people over the years who felt like they had to do something, especially to protect themselves. Their conversations, and especially their conversations with themselves, are full of what ifs. What if he takes advantage of us? What if I don't get that job? What if the rent goes up? What if, what if? And their friends are telling them, you need to start worrying about yourself. And they take that advice. They don't feel right about what they're going to do, but they feel that they don't have any choice. They have to do something. So often, Kairos moments appear, just as Kronos moments are running out. That is not the time to panic. It's the time to pray. It's when we're running out of Kronos that we so often run into Kairos. And I think it's pretty likely that some of us here this morning feel like time is running out and we have no choice, we have to act. And maybe that's so. 
It might very well be so. And maybe it's not. So what is it that makes us feel like we have to do something? Is it fear? Fear is a good alarm, but it's a terrible counselor. Is it the need to be in control? Is it because of what people think? Some people are always missing out on the chance to see God in action because they get in a hurry and do his job for him. Of course, they don't do it as well as he does. And they miss the chance to be strengthened and confirmed in their faith, something that would change their lives. Years ago, I read a story about a man who went to Alaska at the beginning of the last century. He met up with another guy who'd been there for years, and they built a cabin and they lived off the land. They ate the berries that they foraged, the fish that they caught, and the wild game that they shot. As the weather got cold, they planned and went on a great hunt for caribou and moose. They knew that the meat would freeze in the Arctic cold and it would last them throughout the winter. So after several days in the field and a successful hunt, they were on their way back to the cabin. They hadn't been to the cabin in days. They were out of ammunition for the rifle. They had shells for the shotgun. They were crossing a narrow path, maybe 12 feet wide, with a towering mountain on one side and a sheer drop-off on the other. And as they came around a bend in the path, they came face to face with a mother grizzly and her cub. When the mother bear saw them, she turned and went the other direction. And the newcomer breathed again. But the old-timer knew better. She was just taking her cub to safety. As soon as he was out of sight, she would turn and charge. The veteran, the man who'd been there for years, looked for just the right place to stand, and then he waited with only a shotgun. Both guys knew that a shotgun was no match for an angry grizzly bear. As the bear got closer, it began to run, and the newcomer panicked. But the old hand didn't shoot. He waited. The grizzly was maybe 25 feet from them, charging, and then 15, and then 10. And the young man was shouting, shoot, shoot. But the old timer didn't shoot. He waited until that bear was not much more than an arm's length away. And then he discharged both barrels. He knew the buckshot would never kill that animal. He had a different plan, to knock her off the cliff. And that's what happened. Had he done what the younger man was begging him to do, they both would have died on that mountain. Sometimes we feel like that newcomer. We can't go forward. We can't go backward. There's a sheer wall on one side and a drop-off on the other in an unimaginable situation bearing down on us. We feel like we have to do something. And maybe we should do something. That's the problem. We don't know if it's the right moment to act. What will help us in those scary moments is to stop focusing on what we don't know and look instead at what we do know. We do know that it's never right to act in a way that will hurt God's reputation or violate his instructions, no matter how time-pressed we are. We know we ought to honor God by our actions and obey his instructions. When we fail to do so, it's usually because we've been telling ourselves for some time, I can't take this anymore. We even say, I know it's wrong, but what choice do I have? We convince ourselves that we have to do something wrong in order to survive. That's the way the world operates. It's not the way people of Jesus operate. 
We belong to the kingdom of God and live under his protection. We never have to do wrong to make things right. I'm reminded of something Alexander Solzhenitsyn said. He said, let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph. But not through me. The enemy here is fear. Fear that we won't be all right, that God won't take care of us, that others will surpass us and we'll be left behind. But fear is a lousy theologian, heretical even. Fear distorts the scripture. It distances us from God and it disfigures his image. When fear makes your decisions for you, you'll make the wrong ones. You'll make untimely ones. And you'll miss the opportunity of seeing God at work in your life. That happened to King Saul. He was facing a crisis, his first major crisis. The grizzly bear was charging, and he had nowhere to run. And he told himself, I can't wait any longer. I have to do something. Let's read about it. It's 1 Samuel 13. I'm going to read verses 5 through 14. 1 Samuel 13. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sands of the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul was Israel's first king. If you'll remember, Israel wanted a king, and at least in part, it was because they felt safer having someone who could lead their armies into battle. Sometime after Saul ascended the throne, he made a strategic decision to stand up to the Philistines, who had regularly violated Israel's territory. So for the previous two years, Saul had been building a standing army, the first one in Israel's history. But it was very small, about 3,000 men. It's probably all that Saul's government could afford to equip and feed. The rest of the armed forces were a militia, as they always had been, citizen soldiers. They only took up arms when they were called up. Saul divided the standing army into two battalions, and when the battle was joined, he called up the militia. The Philistine army took up positions at Michmash, just a short distance from where Saul and the army regulars and the militia had mustered. And then both armies waited 
it's very likely that neither one wanted to give up the high ground and they were waiting for the other to make the first move. But Israel's army was badly outmanned. And every day they waited more and more of the militia, not the regular army, but the militia deserted. The odds were getting worse and worse and Saul didn't know what to do. Each day when he awoke, there were fewer soldiers than there were the day before. And he started telling himself, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. What was he waiting for? Well, it's really who was he waiting for? The prophet Samuel had made arrangements to rendezvous with him in seven days, at which time he would present a sacrifice. The men would not fight until that sacrifice had been offered. They considered this a holy war. It wouldn't begin until the sacrifice was made. But Samuel hadn't come. By day four, things were serious. By day six, things were desperate. On day seven, Saul told himself he couldn't wait any longer. The citizen soldiers were leaving in droves, and there was no way Saul could defeat the Philistines with only his regular army. They needed to offer the sacrifice before there was no one left, but according to Mosaic law, only a Levite could do that. So what was Saul to do? He's a Benjaminite. Should he seize the moment? Should he offer the sacrifice himself while there was still time and then lead his troops into battle? Or should he wait for Samuel to come, even though every hour they waited decreased the odds of winning? It's a terrible position to be in. The bear was charging. He told himself he couldn't wait any longer, so he pulled the trigger. This is verse 9. Bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. And that's when Samuel arrived. And he was incredulous. What have you done? Samuel had told him he would be there in seven days, and this was still the seventh day. It wasn't that time ran out, it's that Saul's patience ran out and his nerves were shot. He probably had advisors telling him, you must do something, O king, or it will be too late. You have to do something. I think most of us can put ourselves in Saul's place. Something has to be done. We're the ones responsible to do it. The weight of the world is on our shoulders. We feel alone and time is running out. It looks like the only option is to do something that we know isn't right. We might even have people advising us to do it. You better start taking care of yourself. If that was really what Saul was thinking, his thinking was confused. First, he was not alone. The God of Israel was with him. Second, the weight of the world was not on his shoulders. It was on God's. He didn't have to make everything come out right. He had to obey. Third, it's not the way of God's people to do evil so that good may come. If your only option is to do evil, then do nothing. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. But Saul caved, just as you and I have done, and maybe as we would have done if we were in his place. Now, it's clear that he knew he was doing wrong, because when Samuel asked him what he'd done, he had his excuses all lined up. We're going to look at them in just a second, but let me say this first. When you're considering some possible action, if most of your thinking is formulated as excuses and justifications, you're probably ready to make the wrong decision. If you're thinking in terms of excuses, then you need to think again. 
Saul seems to have made his decision on the basis of his excuses. When he was questioned about it, as I think he knew he would be, he had them all ready. First he claimed he did what he did because of the people. You'll notice in this whole thing, he doesn't take responsibility for what he did at all. It was the people who were to blame. They were scattering. And if the sacrifice wasn't presented quickly, there wouldn't be enough soldiers left to fight. And next he blamed Samuel. You, he says emphatically in, in the original language, you weren't here when we needed you. It was Samuel's fault. Then he justified what he did on the basis of what the Philistines were doing. They were mustering at Michmash for a devastating attack. Israel would be crushed if he didn't engage the enemy now. But they needed to offer the sacrifice first. So verse 12, I felt compelled, literally, I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel didn't even bother to respond to those excuses. He just said, you acted foolishly. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. Saul missed an opportunity, not because he failed to act, but because he acted too soon. Let me rephrase that. He missed an opportunity because he failed to trust God. He knew what God's word said to him. But he failed to trust God. He could have been listed in that Hebrews 11 hall of faith we looked at last month had he waited a little longer. But he allowed himself to be led by his fear, not by faith. Every opportunity, every Kairos moment that comes into our life is an opportunity to trust God. But not every opportunity to trust God requires us to take action. Sometimes trusting God requires us to refrain from taking action. So, people of God, let's apply this. If fear is about to make a decision for you, you need to stop, step back, and get counsel. If your reasons for doing a thing are also your excuses for doing that thing, if they're one and the same, you need to rethink what you're about to do. The various temptations and trials that we go through, according to St. James, are a test of our faith. Not a test of our intelligence, or courage, or godliness, or spirituality. So consider the trial that you're going through right now. I know some of us are, right? You're going through a trial right now. If it's a test of whether or not you trust God, Assume that it is, because the trials we go through test our faith, remember? What grade are you getting on that test? The question for us is not, will I act too soon or too late? But will I act out of trust in God, or will I act out of fear? Let me close this with a golf story. The Ford Championship at Doral some years ago, Scott Hoke was on the second hole of a sudden death playoff. It's Sunday evening, and the sun was going down. There's a lot of shadows. Hoke had already been through five eye surgeries because of poor vision, but he could see, so he's on the second hole of a playoff with one other guy. He could see that this nine-foot birdie putt would break left. But his caddy stood there and said, no, it's going to break right. 
The crowd got impatient while they waited. And they wanted Hook to putt the ball. But instead, he went and he asked for the playoff to be resumed the next day in the full light. And the crowd didn't like it. They, they didn't want to leave before the end of the tournament. And it was Sunday evening, so for many of them, their reservations were up and they were flying back home and going back to work. So they left frustrated, complaining about Hoke. The next day, he sank that nine-foot putt and went on to the next hole and won the championship. But in the light of day, he could see that he had been wrong. It didn't break left, it broke right. His caddy had seen it correctly. Had he been pressured into going ahead because of what the crowd or the TV network wanted, he almost certainly would have lost that tournament and the $900,000 that went with a win. When we can't see clearly, we need to wait for light. Let's not lose like Saul did because we feel pressured. Let's not act out of fear, but out of faith. Let's seize the moment to act, but also let's accept the moment to wait. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus won't let us down. Anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Let's pray. God, I pray for you. For us, your people, for your church here. Lord, you know that some of us probably right this moment feel like we're pressured and we have to do something and we're not sure that something is the right thing. Or we may even know it's the wrong thing, but we don't know what else to do. Lord, we feel like the disciples of old and say, increase our faith. Help us to act not out of our fear. But out of our confidence in you and reliance on what you've said. Lord, we know, left on our own, we're going to miss the time. I thank you that we're not left on our own. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.